Good morning. Great to be with you all this morning. Uh, in addition to all that we have already done this morning with celebrating mothers and graduates and worshiping, we start a new series, which we are excited about, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles, if you would, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, we're actually going to look at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and we're going to introduce it. And so by way of introduction, let me just say this. Uh, Jody and I moved to this area four years this summer, so coming up on four years. And we'd lived several different places in our lives, as I know many of you have had. I don't meet too many people here that, are brand, or that have lived here all their lives. I know some of you are out there, but most of us have moved in from other places. And so you had a first impression when you moved to Middle Tennessee. We did as well. And I want to tell you what our first impression was as we visited here and then as we moved in. I wrote it this way, among other things, Williamson County is a veritable paradise for upper-middle-class, wholesome, family-oriented, conservative, music-loving people, <laughs> which basically meant I loved it, right? I was all in. Um, we have our own version of the good life here, don't we, in Middle Tennessee. Uh, here's how I would describe our version of the good life. It's kind of a uh, family-friendly southern charm version of the good life. It's defined by having a nice house, your kids in good schools or homeschooling potentially, having a fulfilling job with a flexible work schedule. That's a big deal around here, I've learned. Having access to art and culture. You know, it's all around us right here in Franklin and then just up the road in Nashville. Uh, Good parks, great restaurants, the beauty of the countryside that's all around us. Uh, We can go down to 30A for a great vacation. The occasional celebrity sighting, you know, around town. Of course, we low-key that because that's how we roll. Uh, so the idea in Middle Tennessee is it's, you know, it's, it's, it's affluence. And not everybody has affluence, but there's affluence all around us. It's great, family-friendly, wholesome environment. People move here all the time. They're coming from all over. I can't tell you how many Californians I've met. You know, that are just fleeing the the price of living or, you know, the the craziness as they would define it out there. And they're coming here searching for the good life, the family-friendly version of the good life. And uh, this morning, we begin this series that has an awful lot to say about the good life. You know, this book was essentially written by a man who pursued and had the means to pursue everything he possibly wanted in life, and he was wildly successful. In fact, if you've noticed the little tagline on the bottom of our our sermon series, it's a a bit provocative. The title of the series is Unmasking the Good Life. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, I think it's exactly what Solomon does as he has written this book of Ecclesiastes. So although this book is relatively obscure, in fact, I'm curious by a show of hands, how many of you have been in a church that you remember that have taught through Ecclesiastes? Okay, I see two, maybe about maybe 20 or less hands up around the room. So not many of us. For many of us, this is maybe the first time we've gone in depth and studied this book. It's relatively obscure, yet I think it's one of the most modern-sounding books in the whole Bible. It's fascinating. I want to encourage all of you to read it this week, just sometime. It's not a long book. It's 12 chapters, but the chapters are short. I guess it'll take you maybe 30 minutes to read it. Uh, Another great way to to sort of experience this book is to have it read to you. Ask someone to read it to you or, you know, grab one of those apps. You know, the Bible app, you can just hit the little speaker button and it'll read it to you. Or or ask your Alexa if you have one of those or or whatever. Uh, Have the book read to you or read it this week. You'll be amazed at how modern it sounds, how relevant it sounds. 
sounds. In fact, it sounds as if it could have been written last year, not 3,000 years ago. It speaks to this quest that we all have to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life, and we all chase after it. All of us do in various ways, shapes, and forms. Well, you might say it this way. Ecclesiastes is particularly relevant for a culture in search of the good life. And all versions of it, including our own version here in Middle Tennessee. So we're going to be in this book for three months. We're going to walk through section by section, paragraph by paragraph as we do. Uh, it, actually, I think Lloyd and I decided this week we're going to extend it even, even further so that we can take smaller chunks of the text. So probably through September or so, we'll be walking through Ecclesiastes. My goal this morning is to orient you to the book. It's not a particularly easy book to understand. And when you do understand it, it's not a particularly easy book to, uh, to digest. It's, it's kind of heavy. It's difficult. It takes you to some deeper places, even some darker places, I would say. And so this morning, I want to give you a bit of a grid by how in the world are we to interpret this book. So if you're open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to jump in there. Uh, my outline this morning is to talk about three things. I want to talk about the author of the book, the message of the book, and the meaning of the book. So this will flow straight from the text. The author is in chapter 1, verse 1. The message is in chapter 1, verse 2. The meaning of the whole book doesn't come till the end. And we're going to look at the last two verses of the book as well when we talk about the meaning. Uh, D.A. Hubbard said this, it's no exaggeration to say that there may be less agreement about the interpretation of Ecclesiastes than there is about any other biblical book, including the revelation of John. So for some of you, that's going to engage you a little bit. Say, all right, there's some controversy here. There certainly is. Part of the controversy is the author. Who actually wrote this? I've already alluded to Solomon. Let's dig in and let's see what it says in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what's so controversial about that? You know, son of David, we know Solomon was a son of David. He was king in Jerusalem. What's interesting is he's called the preacher in this particular case. I'm going to dig into that word for a little bit, and you'll see why in just a minute. Hebrew kohelet is what that word is. Uh, preachers, maybe not the perfect translation. It just means a teacher. Uh, it comes from the root word assembly. So think about someone who has assembled a group of people and is addressing the assembly. So the speaker, the teacher, in this case, the preacher. Not a preacher like I'm preaching to you. This is more of wisdom teaching. Think of it that way. Now, what's interesting and a little bit controversial is in the other books that are attributed to Solomon, namely Proverbs and Song of Solomon, they both say Solomon right in the first verse. This one, it's almost as if his identity is a little bit veiled. He's called Kohelet. He's called the teacher. So some people have said maybe this isn't actually Solomon that's doing the speaking here. Well, we know son of David. Now, technically, that could be anyone in David's line. But when you add in king in Jerusalem, and then when you read the book, it literally reads like Solomon's life story. And you'll see that as we go through it. So we have a lot of confidence, at least, that the voice that is speaking, the Kohelet, the teacher, the preacher, is the voice of Solomon. Now, what we don't know is, did Solomon himself literally write it down, or did someone later compile his wisdom and write it down through his voice? We don't know the answer to that. And I think Scripture actually allows us, you, you could actually go either way. I actually lean towards someone later wrote down these words as Solomon's voice. And I'll tell you two primary reasons why I lean that way. Uh, one reason I lean that way is there's a narrator that keeps popping in several times throughout the book. So you see him here introducing the book, the words of the preacher, 
right? He's introducing. At the end of the book, in fact, the last 10 or 12 verses of the book, the narrator comes back in. He goes, and let me tell you a little bit about this teacher. Here's what he did. Here's the great wisdom that he had. Here's the things that he did. So it's, it's, as if it's a third-person narrative. This narrator pops in. The rest of the book is in first person, I believe, representing the words of Solomon himself. The other reason I think it was probably not literally Solomon that penned the words, but they represent his voice, is because the Hebrew is very, very different than the Hebrew in Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Now, that in and of itself, you know, is not enough. But when you combine all these factors, the way that I interpret it and the way that Lloyd and I are going to teach it is we'll refer to Solomon as the voice of, the wisdom behind this book. It is clearly representing his thoughts, his ideas, his wisdom. I believe a narrator is penning this probably after Solomon's death at some point later on. So that's the best that I can do at unpacking some of that controversy. If you're interested in it, you can read a lot more about it. I think... um, uh, you'll either get put to sleep or you'll uh, enjoy it, depending on your, your, your wiring. Uh, let me jump into, um, go ahead and move forward to the second verse. But one more quick word on Solomon. Assuming it is his voice, and I think it's clear that it is his voice, why does that matter? Only because Solomon was the most successful Hebrew of all time. He was the king that ruled over Israel during the apex of its civilization. He was the king during the golden era. Solomon not only was the ruler of Israel during this time, Solomon was the richest, he was the most powerful, he was the wisest, he had the biggest mansion, he had the most property, he had the most fame, he had the most wives, you know, he had the most influence, people all over the world knew who he was, the queen of Sheba herself came and visited him to learn from him and see all the wealth that he collected. The idea is this, if there's ever anyone that has actually reached the good life, If there's anyone that's ever climbed to the top of the proverbial ladder and had the perspective to look around and see what's up there and then call down to the rest of us down below and and give us a word of wisdom, it's Solomon. And that's the man that we're hearing from. Well, what is the message of this wise teacher, this successful, good life living ruler? It comes in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, here's the summary statement of the whole book. All right? So immediately, you kind of get smacked in the head by a two-by-four. It says, it's all vanity. Now, we got to talk about what that word means because it's the key word of the whole book. It's the Hebrew word hevel. It literally means vapor. Vapor. The English versions go in several different ways here. King James, New American Standard, ESV, they all go vanity. I don't love that word choice. Here's why. In our modern vernacular, when we hear vanity, we think of like somebody in front of a mirror that thinks they're good looking. You know, that's, that's not the idea here. Vanity has the idea of, of meaningless, which is how the NIV translates it. Uh, the New English translation, the Holman Christian, they go with futile or futility. It's all futility. Like it's all worthless in a sense. Uh, I like what the Amplified does. It tends to amplify, and it says vapor of vapors and futility of futilities. It puts it all together, and I think that's a pretty clear sense. I've got an illustration, and I've left it down there. Jody, would you mind handing me that bag? Thank you, Vanna White. Now, here's vapor. Here's futility. I've got this little spray bottle up here, right? Now, there is substance in this, but I've got this nozzle, you know, adjusted in such a way so that I'm going to spray it up, and it's just a mist, 
Now, you can kind of, I don't know if you can see it from up down there or not, but I can kind of see it up here. It's just a vapor. You know, it goes up in the air. It lasts, oh, I don't know, about six, eight seconds. And then, it, you know, it kind of just disappears. It's kind of floating that way and it's gone. In fact, I can even spray my hand and I feel a little something, but not really. And it'll be dry in about 30 seconds. It's here, but it's gone. I could literally spray this entire water bottle and I'll just sort of almost disappear. It's vapor. It's meaningless. It's uh, temporal. It doesn't last. There's not much to it. It's just a vapor. It's a mist. This is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, it's all a vapor. It's all a mist. You just expend your life on it, and then it's gone. Enjoy it for the brief time that you have it. It's a mist. It's vapor. It's vanity. And he applies this to everything. In fact, listen to this list of things that he, he applies this word to. Havel, vapor, vanity, meaningless. It's quite a, an impressive list. He applies it to wealth. He applies it to work. He applies it to pleasure and fame. This one might surprise you. He applies it to wisdom. He applies it to long life. And he applies it to youth. He applies it to political power, large families, hobbies, laughter, drink, possessions, sex, honor, children, even righteous living. I hope that last one trips you up a little bit. What do you mean righteous living is vapor? What do you mean it's Havel? It's meaningless. It's vanity. How could that be? One of the remarkable things about this book is the speaker continuously pushes us into places that we would not go ourselves. Like he explores the depths of things. He doesn't just stop at saying, hey, the pursuit of wealth is meaningless because it it doesn't actually provide you fulfillment. Uh, You you can hear that message in a lot of different places. Solomon says, yeah, the pursuit of wealth ultimately is meaningless, but so is the pursuit of wisdom. So is righteous living. So is good family life. Meaningless. Ultimately, what are we to do with this? How are we to interpret this? Well, we are now into the major interpretive problem with Ecclesiastes. There are some moments in this book that quite honestly are so low, like so depressing, and I'll use that word in quotation marks, it's hard to imagine how the Holy Spirit could be behind this. I want you to feel that tension. I don't want to resolve that tension for you too easily or too quickly. It's an important tension that you feel in the book. In fact, there's one place in Ecclesiastes where Solomon goes all the way, like as far as he could possibly go. And here's what he says. He says, it would be better not to be born. If everything's meaningless, if everything's just a mist, it's here today, gone tomorrow, and it has no lasting substance to it, it would be better, Solomon concludes at one point, not to have even been born. What do we do with a message like that? How are we going to preach this? You know, is this going to be a depressing journey for the next four months? Well, there's more to the story, but I want you to sit in this tension for a little while. And let me give you a couple of interpretational tips here on, on how to uh, think through the message of Ecclesiastes. But the first thing I want to say, and by way of interpreting it, is I want to give you one thing that we cannot do with it. We must not do with it. And that is to too quickly turn the volume down on the tension or too quickly dismiss the message of vanity. You can't simply say, oh, that's just the words of a man who doesn't know God. That's just the words of a secular atheist. That was not Solomon. Now, he went through a large part of his life where he was in rebellion. 
But that was not Solomon. In fact, God is all throughout Ecclesiastes. God is integrated into his philosophy when he's describing what he sees around him as he's sort of probing the, the outer fences of life that God has created. And he's saying, I've pressed up against everything that I can press up against. I've pursued everything as far as I could take it. Wisdom, pleasure, wealth, with God, all these things that God has given. See, he's not a secular atheist here, so it's not so easy to dismiss what he's saying. Solomon knew God. In fact, his wisdom came from God. God was the one that gave him his wisdom. Now, what some Christians want to do with Ecclesiastes, I think, is to sort of just say, look at the worldview of the secular person trying to find meaning in all the wrong places. We Christians know better. We would never try to find meaning in our wealth, our affluence. We would never try to find meaning in our wisdom. We would never try to find meaning in our families and our good schools and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our large families. We would never do those kinds of things. Not so fast, my friend, right? I'm in this. You're in this. Middle Tennessee is in this. We're all searching for the good life in all these other kinds of ways. Um, One of the things I hope this study does for us is help us understand that we can't just Christianize the pursuit of the good life and expect to find fulfillment. Now, what do I mean by that? How would you Christianize the pursuit of the good life? Um, I'll say it this way, you know, kind of pejoratively, but you can't just uh, slap a fish sticker on the back of your Land Rover and expect to find fulfillment in your ride. Yeah, I heard. I hear an amen. Like some of the Land Rover like owners, they're like doing like this. Um, uh, Another way to think about this is a a vanity plate is still a vanity plate, even if it says "blessed." You see where I'm going with this? It's like I, I think of all places in the world, it could be that right here in Middle Tennessee, we are most prone to say, I, I say it's all about Jesus. I've got the right radio stations dialed in. I've got the right fish sticker on my car. You know, I, I, have, I have the home that's, that's, that's beautiful. And I say, well, it's, it's for ministry purposes, you know. And, and I'm not knocking. Some of you use your homes amazingly for ministry. God's given you that and you're using it. Praise God. But I'm saying it's pretty easy for us to sort of just wrap our good life pursuits in this Christian veneer, and and actually we're not finding fulfillment in Christ as much as we're finding or searching for fulfillment in all these other things, and we're just kind of wrapping it up in this beautiful Christian packaging. I'm in this with you. I'm I'm not outside of this culture. I'm, I'm with us. Maybe my greatest fear in Middle Tennessee is that we as a congregation would fall into this trap of thinking we're living as disciples of Jesus, and most of us may be more like pursuing a sanctified version of the American dream. Now, I know these words, you know, may, may be stepping on toes, and that's not my intention. My intention is to wake us up. Wake us up. This is what Ecclesiastes will do to us. It's going to help us by unmasking the good life and pointing to something different, pointing to something more, pointing to something with more substance. Now, some of you in the room, you like, you've kind of reached the top, you got the house, you got the property, you got you know, the land out in Leaper's Fork or wherever it is, you know, whatever your version is, and you're kind of like, yeah, it's nice, but there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Now, what are we going to do with this message, right? How, how do we hold this tension Everything's meaningless, even righteous living, even wisdom, even families, all these kinds of things. How is it possible that it could all be meaningless? Well, I want to give you two interpretive lenses by which you must read the book. The first is you have to read Ecclesiastes through the lens of a fallen creation. 
You must read Ecclesiastes through the lens of a fallen creation. Here's what I mean. Remember that the world that Solomon was exploring is broken and cursed. Solomon is pushing out up against the outer edges of the cursed creation, right? Ever since Genesis 3, the earth is not the way it's meant to be. The, the fruit of the ground, so to speak, isn't the way that God intended. It has thorns. You know, there's nothing, Solomon keeps using this word, under the sun. Life under the sun is meaningless. He'll say that over and over again. I searched everything under the sun. I saw that nothing under the sun had any substance. Nothing under the sun had any meaning. When you hear that phrase, under the sun, as you read Ecclesiastes, I want you to think, life in a fallen creation. Life under the curse. Because that's what Solomon's referring to. We live in a fallen, broken creation. By the way, we still live under the same sun Solomon did. And by the way, Genesis or Revelation 21, 22, there's going to be no more sun. The glory of God is going to shine forth, right? So as long as we're living under this sun, life is broken, life is fallen. So read Ecclesiastes through the lens of a fallen creation. Here's why this matters most. In a fallen creation, life is no longer the dominant player. Death is the dominant player. Death is a significant theme in Ecclesiastes, interestingly, in many ways, you might think of the book as a narrative of Solomon raging against the one thing he cannot overcome. Death. Death is the one thing that he can't buy himself out of. He can't exercise his military might against. He can't manipulate through his political prowess. Death is it. And Solomon, probably writing this or reflecting the wisdom of his later years, is struggling. He's wrestling with this. In Solomon's understanding, you know, it's death that makes everything meaningless. So he's not saying, hey, you know, there's, there's not, um, um, when you spray that spray bottle, I mean, it's, it's there, right? The house, the influence, the kids, everything is there, but it's not going to last. And there's going to be nothing in this room that will carry the story of the vapor for eternity. You see, that's what Solomon is getting at because death has the final word here under the sun. Then everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. And he wrestles with this. In fact, chapter 3, verse 11, one of the most important verses in the book, he says, God has put eternity in man's heart. In other words, where I think he's getting at is God has designed us with a longing for permanence, a longing for eternity, but we live under the sun where everything is missed. Everything is short. Everything is temporal. Everything is vanity. And so this creates this tension that this wise, and, and even, I want to use the word godly man, not all through his life, but certainly at various points in his life, is wrestling through. Eternity is in our hearts, but our destiny is death. Do you feel the tension? I spoke at a funeral in this room yesterday. There is a tension that death carries with us because we know that this is the end for all of us, that, that there's a sense that your death, there will be a day when there will be a group of people gathered in a room like this talking about you. There will be. And we insulate ourselves from death in this culture probably more than any culture that, that perhaps the earth has seen. Um, we don't like to think about death. I, I saw it written in one of the commentaries I was reading that you know, just as the, the Puritans were loath to talk about sex, our culture is loath to talk about death. We just push it away. We don't want to think about it. Solomon is going to take us there. 
And this is a good thing in this sense. Now, throughout the book, he alternates between sort of two implications of the reality of death. One is despair, and he does go there. And the other is to say, life's short, so enjoy the gifts God has given you and enjoy them well. He alternates between these two philosophies, but there's one thing he doesn't have that we have. Uh, As men and women living after the time of Jesus, we know there's more to life than life under the sun. We know that that's not all there is. Death's not the end of the story. Solomon didn't have that perspective. At least he didn't have that theology as clearly as we do now. So in order to fully understand the book, it's what I'd say. Uh, you have to think about or read, read the book of Ecclesiastes through a second lens. And the second lens is to read Ecclesiastes through the lens of progressive revelation. Through the lens of progressive revelation. What does that mean? It means that God did not reveal everything all at once. The Bible is a collection of 66 books that were written over approximately 3,000 year period of time. And they tell a story. And the story they tell was progressively revealed as the story went along, you see. So there's not this idea that, you know, all of a sudden God just shows up and gives the Bible and everything is right here. At Solomon's point in time, Solomon is reflecting on the revelation that God had given up to that point in time. There was not clarity around what happens after death. There, there were, you know, an early Hebrew theology. There was just emerging, you know, really with David. You know, David had sort of a glimpse, I think prophetically, that there's something more after the grave. But it wasn't clear. In fact, even in Jesus' day, okay, which was about a thousand years after Solomon lived, even in Jesus' day, there was debate among the religious authorities, is there life after death or not? And the Sadducees, the ruling body in Jerusalem, said, no, there's no resurrection. And the Pharisees said, yes, you know, there's going to be some kind of resurrection, but they didn't, weren't clear what it was. So Solomon's writing from his place in the progressive revelation, and from his perspective, life under the sun's all there is, at least with certainty. At least with certainty. So from Solomon's point of view, there's a sense that death was the end of the story, at least as far as he could be certain of. And he's wrestling with this. And so if we want to engage this book, I think we have to follow Solomon down the rabbit hole because we live under the same sun. Now, we have a future hope, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but we've got to follow Solomon down the rabbit hole because if we don't, if we don't allow ourselves to feel the tension of death and to actually get angry about death, then we're missing out something important that God put in us, which is a desperation for all things to be made right. I think you're going to hear this in Solomon's words. He's desperate. He's almost angry that death has the final word. He's longing for something more. And so if you're not able to feel that tension with him, uh, then, then Christians of all people, I think, should feel the weight of the broken creation so that we will long for things to be made right. So that we will desire urgently for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we await for Jesus to return and restore all things. Also, if you refuse to follow Solomon down this rabbit hole that's, that has a lot of tension in it and has a lot of weight to it and wrestling with death and reality and what does this mean, the fact that it's all going to turn to dust, if you're not willing to kind of carry that tension and follow Solomon down that hole, you might just find yourself seeking fulfillment in things. That will never bring you fulfillment. You might just find yourself seeking fulfillment in things that are ultimately just going to be dust. 
Solomon is a warning against that. Now, we can start to see how Ecclesiastes fits into God's continuing revelation through these 66 books by thinking of Ecclesiastes this way. And this is how I want to encourage you to think about it. This is a little bit different, but I think it'll make sense based on where we've gone so far. Ecclesiastes is the clearest bell in Scripture that rings to mourn the hopeless state of affairs in a fallen creation. It's the clearest bell that rings to mourn the hopeless state of affairs in a fallen creation. You might think of it this way. It's a desperate cry for eternal life in the midst of a world that is otherwise meaningless. What Solomon would say to all those people that would try to find meaning in temporal things is he would say, you're a fool. It's here today, gone tomorrow. If there's not eternity, if that longing in your heart, God has placed eternity in your heart, if that is not one day fulfilled, what's the use? What's the purpose? It's vanity. It's meaningless. I want to give you an illustration that for me really helped me as I thought about this um, this way. And uh, it, it, it's the idea of negative space in art. Now, I'm not an artist, all right? I don't even pretend to be. Um, but some of you are artists, some of you are photographers, and you understand the concept of negative space. Let me define it for you. Uh, negative space basically is the spacing between different elements, which, in a sense, the negative space contains nothing. Yet, it's actually the negative space that defines what the positive space is. So I want to give you a couple examples on the screen. The first one is like the, the, the most um, clear one you've ever seen. Many of you have seen this image before. Go ahead and put it on the screen. All right, there it is. Now, um, what is it? <laughs> it's a face. No, it's two people staring at each other. You've seen this optical illusion before. Most of us have. Now, interestingly, let's assume for a minute that, that it's a black background. Therefore, the blackness is the negative space. It's actually the negative space that's defining the object in the middle. Let me give you another example. Uh, this one's kind of just for fun. Let's put up, go ahead and put up the next, next example on the screen. Who do you see? Some of you see Batman. Who? Some of you see what? The penguin. Yeah, you see the penguin or you see Batman. Now, you know, maybe that tells something about your personality. I don't know. Um, clever use of negative space. Okay, and let's go to one more. I, this one I couldn't resist. Um, you cannot not see the hands but they're not actually there there's no hands it's just it's vacuum right it's 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 emptiness it's vanity it's meaninglessness you see now much of ecclesiastes is like negative space it defines where you should look. In other words, Solomon is saying, don't look here, don't look in wealth, don't look here, don't look there, don't look in these other places. You're not going to find meaning there. You're not going to find purpose there. It's negative space. What's the negative space there for? Just to make you feel empty? Just to make you feel depressed? No, it's purposeful. I think this is how the Spirit is using it in the canon of the whole Bible in the collective space. Think of Ecclesiastes as a sort of negative space in the canon that draws our attention away from things that are broken and cursed and toward things where the fullness of life actually is found. Well, where is that? You may be asking. Does the book just leave us in the longing or does it actually point us someplace? And this is where we get to the very end. It's not really to the very end that we see this with, with any kind of reasonable clarity. So we've talked about the author. 
We talked about the message, which is vanity, emptiness, meaningless. Now let's talk about the meaning. What's the meaning behind it all? You know, theologically speaking, how do we put all this together? Well, the narrator's voice comes back at the end of the book. So let's turn there. You know, we're going to go ahead and begin with the end in mind. And on week one, we're going to look at the, the, the end uh, because you need to sort of see this as a, as a purposeful ending. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to show you verse 13 and 14 in just a second. But note that the narrator's voice comes back. It actually comes back in verse 8. You know, vanity of vanities, you know, he preached the, the, the first theme. And then verse 9, he says, you know, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people. So it's stepping out of the first person narrative and now back into the third person narrative. So now he's talking about Solomon, I, I believe. He's talking about this uh, Kohelet. Uh, teacher, preacher. And so he's going to wrap things up and he gets to these last two, last two verses. So look with me at verse 13 and 14. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now, that seems to strike an ominous tone at the end. It's like, fear God because he's going to judge. All right? But it's much more beautiful than that. In fact, you have to understand what, what fear actually is. Fear is not being scared of God. Fear is respectfully honoring God. Fear is obedience and trust. Fear is believing that you are in the tender, loving arms of a good father and that you can trust him and obey him. That's what fear the Lord actually is. Secondly, judgment is not just punishment. Judgment is restoration. Judgment is putting the right things back in their place. Think about even a good judge in our culture. His job is not just to punish evildoers. The job of a judge is to restore justice. The job of a judge is to create the, you know, restitch together the, the fabric of a community that has been ripped through a crime as best as our legal system can, very imperfectly. Now imagine a perfect judge, a just judge, who's going to restore all things. He's going to take the brokenness of creation and he's going to stitch it back together in wholeness in completeness that's the judgment right now if you think of it that way that there's going to be a restoration to come then everything's not meaningless in fact note what he says in verse 14 this just blows my mind when i think about it god will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. Here's essentially what this means. The restoration of justice will include every single thing. Therefore, every single thing ultimately will have meaning. Oh. So the beginning of the book, Kohelet, the teacher, says it's all meaningless under the sun because it's going to end in just silence. Empty space, negative space. And at the end of the book, everything's going to be restored. Everything's going to be judged. There's going to be meaning in every single thing. How do you integrate these two perspectives? Well, keep in mind, everything is meaningless at the start of the book because death is on the throne in the fallen creation, that's the perspective Solomon is writing from. The narrator comes back at the end, and I believe he is prophetically, in a sense, looking forward across that empty vacuum, that negative space, and he doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he has faith through the Spirit writing the book through him, in a sense, 
that all will be made right. There will be a time in the future where death will no longer be on the throne. Life will rule. And because that is true, everything matters. So the author of these verses didn't know how it was going to happen. We do. We do. Hundreds of years after Ecclesiastes was written, Jesus came. He overcame death, which was the enemy that Solomon could not get around. He overcame death by death, by dying. Then he was brought back to life. So now resurrection rules. And Jesus is the first fruits. We will all follow any of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus did was he displaced death on the throne of the earth. And he restored life to its proper place. So listen to what Paul wrote about our future hope. This is Romans chapter 8. He's going to put all the pieces together for us. Again, Paul writing from a perspective closer to where we are. You know, after the time of Christ. Here's what Paul writes. I consider our present sufferings, which we're still in, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Listen to this next part. For the creation was subjected to frustration... Not of its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. By the way, frustration is a Greek word. Uh, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, in what they call the Septuagint, this is the same Greek word they chose for the Hebrew word havel, meaningless, vanity, from Ecclesiastes. Same word. So Paul is saying it was subjected to vanity. The earth was subjected to meaninglessness, to futility, purposefully. And here's the purpose in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought forth in the glorious freedom in the children of God. All right, here's another way to think about it. The negative space of Ecclesiastes over here shouts out, meaningless, meaningless. In light of death, everything is meaningless. And it's like the writer just shouts that out into this vacant place that he can't even see clearly what's out there and then new testament an echo comes back and the echo says meaningful meaningful in light of resurrection and future glory and restoration everything is actually meaningful and we live in the tension now I want to close our service by inviting you into a tangible expression of the hope we have in the restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's how we're going to conclude this morning. And Jesus told his disciples, as you remember, as he was eating that last meal with them, he said, this bread that you've been eating is not just bread. He's saying it's pointing to something. This is my body. He took the cup with the wine and he said, this cup is my blood, which has been shed or will be shed for you. And he did this literally the day before he was going to give his life on the cross. These elements that we are about to hold in our hands are tangible representations of the promise of life for all who receive the gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe for some of you this morning, you've never actually received the gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're still living on this side of meaningless. You're still wrestling with, my life's going to end in death, and I don't know what's going to happen afterward. There is hope. Scripture clearly teaches Jesus came so that you can have confidence 
that there is life after this life, and that life will be far greater and far more fulfilling. In fact, the only place you will find ultimate meaning. Everything over here, even from a Christian worldview, only is a shadow, only vaguely points to the solidness and meaning that we will have in eternity. So the ushers are going to come and pass. Uh, I want you just to hold on to the bread, hold on to the cup. Anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, either years before or today for the first time, is welcome at this table. Hold the elements in your hands, and then I'll come back up here and we will partake of them together. Father, thank you for loving us and giving us your son. Thank you for the truth that we believe as Scripture has revealed it of the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for this book that's going to help us so much in an area that we need help, which is to show us what we dare not look to for satisfaction and fulfillment. And in that emptiness, in that vanity, in that negative space, so to speak, may we find Jesus in Ecclesiastes. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.